Good evening, and welcome to another special COVID edition of Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen, and with me tonight, as always, is... Stephen Payne from the heart of the pandemic pandemonia itself. Tonight, we're going to be doing another special edition. We will be reviewing Friday the 13th on its 40th anniversary year. We're going to be looking at the film, some of its impacts, how it's held up, its legacy, and pretty much anything else we want to talk about. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, yeah, let me let me say it. Tonight, in particular, I have to tell you, all fair disclosure, I've really got my dander up tonight. You've okay. got my bloods boiling, my hackles are raised, or my cockles are raised. My hackles and my cockles are both raised tonight about what we're going to be talking about. So just bear with me, because there's going to be some emotions tonight. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, how, uh, how are your cockles doing, by the way? I think my cockles are fine. I think it is my dander that's been giving me oh, trouble. Yeah, well, you gotta, yeah, I can understand. This is a passionate subject. Tonight. <laughs> it is a passionate subject. So let's just dive right in. All right, then. So, and part of, let me say, part of the reason my hackles and cockles are raised is, you know, we're in the mi- middle of this pandemic and, you know, a lot of things have happened. Lives have been lost. Lives are being changed jobs are being lost. A lot of things are being impacted. We're having to make a lot of adjustments. And this is a very minor thing in the bigger picture, but last weekend would have been the Monster Palooza convention in Pasadena. Oh yeah. This is the first one in six years that I've missed through Mm. obviously no fault of my own. One of the things they were going to have highlighted this year was going to be a celebration of the 40th anniversary of Friday the 13th. In fact, this past, I believe it was May 4th, we're recording on, was this the 16th? It is the 16th today. We are coming at you live on the 16th. So I believe May 4th would have actually been the 40th anniversary of the release of the 1980 Friday the 13th. So it saddens me. I couldn't have been there for that. Saddens me. A lot of things are sad right now, but um, got me thinking that, you know what? Let's, Let's take a look at this movie and the impact it had on the world because... It did. It was a major part of uh, of genre history. It's an unmistakable and very large part of what has formed the horror genre from 1980 till present. Right. So, and I will give our listeners a disclosure. I don't think I had ever seen the movie all the way through in one sitting. I'd seen chunks of it. Obviously, I, I knew the iconic bits, which we'll be talking about. But it's really interesting to go back some these 40 years later and look at it through you know, the eyes of 2020 and see how some of the things have held up or not held up. Stephen, why don't you give us a quick rundown of the high points of the film in terms of a plot summary? Well, for the original film, and this is sort of hard to do because there were 12 films, and if you include the remake, so, but just focusing on the original film, Friday the 13th is essentially a, a good old-fashioned campfire tale in many regards, taken to an R rating, about a um, group of camp counselors who are working to reopen Camp Crystal Lake, which has more or less been closed since 1958 when a series of terrible things took place there. And as they're working to reopen what's deemed a cursed summer camp, the night of Friday the 13th, a full moon, Halloween night. Wait, no, those can't work. Anyway, all right, it wasn't Halloween. But the camp counselors start falling dead one by one through gruesome means. 
and um, leading to a conclusion in which we find out who the killer is. So really, Friday the 13th is a revenge tale, a morality tale of sorts, about people being killed trying to reopen a summer camp. Let me talk about two things that struck me about this film right off the bat, which was, and I'm sure Stephen E. will keep me honest on timing, but how much it seemed to rip off the tone of Halloween, specifically in the opening teaser, which takes place in 1958, which establishes the killer, or a killer, we don't really know. And then it jumps to present time, which is in the 80s. And there's so many shots of the point of view of the killer shot. You're looking through the killer's eyes as he stalks his victim. So that's how, or we assume it's a him. So that's part of it. So spoiler alert, <laughs> it's not a him, which <gasps> dun, I think dun, is, dun. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, and then finally, also Carrie with the big jump scare at the end. I mean, very Carrie-like in that. So it was almost like the filmmaker said, hey, that's a pretty good formula for a film i can take the best parts of that and i'll throw it on a lake and off we go so Stephen E, maybe you talked about it in the intro maybe what we need to talk about is what defined the 80s horror movie because clearly halloween and friday the 13th were the big names back then and i know there was a few more what were the high points what did you need what were the essentials of an 80s horror film Okay, that's a fantastic question. So let me let me backtrack a little bit into a couple timelines of history. So we have this thing called a slasher film genre, which is really what defined horror films in the 80s. And by 80s, I mean really that whole genre lasted technically from 78, some say all the way to 93. Some say it's been rebooted several times up to present day. So it's been an enduring genre. Now, Halloween is really credited with being the film that started the whole thing. It did two things. Number one, it, it was a very frightening film. Well, three things. One, it was a very frightening film. Two, it actually got some good critical response, which was highly unusual. Three, it was a, one of the first really successful independent films. In fact, I believe at the time it came out, it was the highest grossing independent film of all time. I think it was topped by Dawn of the Dead and the Muppet movie, of all things. Huh within the next year or so. But it was a huge hit Yeah, from an independent studio, independent film uh, makers. And I want to tip my hand too much, but I think that Halloween's a masterpiece and I am not going to put Friday the 13th into that category. But please continue. Well, they are in the same genre, right. but far apart in class. Absolutely. So I, I rank Halloween as the 12th greatest horror film of all time. I do not rank Friday the 13th probably anywhere in the top 100 best horror films of all time. Certainly influential. Well, that's the thing. So the way I look at it, Halloween was the ignition source for the genre. Friday the 13th was the accelerant. Because mm. after Halloween came out, studios are still kind of, eh, it was an independent film, I don't know, eh, whatever. We're going to wait to see how it plays out. Then Paramount, which is a major studio, got behind Friday the 13th. Because as it was pitched by Sean Cunningham, the producer, was basically, it was a combination of, hey, look, we can rip off Halloween and Meatballs, oh, meatballs. at the same time. It does have a yeah. Meatballs vibe. Oh, yeah. You Summer it. Camp and, and, and Mysterious Killer. Right. And Paramount was, here's half a million dollars. Go to town. And yeah, just keep our names out of it, but go ahead and do it. And we'll bankroll it. So Friday the 13th, because it was banked, backed by a major studio, is really the one more so than Halloween mm -hmm. that launched it. You can go all the way back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as the film that influenced Halloween. Right. But that didn't because it was 
it's while it was successful, it was again independent and its success was choppy over the course of a long period of time. But when Halloween came out, um, excuse me, Friday the 13th came out, again, you had a major studio behind it. Cost half a million dollars, 550, whatever to make. It wound up grossing anywhere, depending what number you believe, between 40 and 60 million dollars. Right. It's the 18th highest grossing film of 1980, which shocked everyone because it actually outgrossed a number of higher profile genre films, including John Carpenter's The Fog, which was his first horror film following Halloween. Mm -hmm. Prom Night, which literally missed being the next slasher film by two months of release, Mm. which also was backed by a studio and had Jamie Lee Curtis in it from Halloween. It outgrossed Brian De Palma's high-profile Hitchcock film, Dressed to Kill. Right. And in a truly shocking development, that, and this is the one that I think really caused the genre to turn on its ear, it outgrossed The Shining. Hmm. So Kubrick's The Shining, I rank, which is one of the greatest horror films of all time, got obliterated at the box office by Friday the 13th. Wow. So when Friday the 13th made, you know, was released and found this level of success with a major studio behind it, this shaped close to a decade of filmmaking in the genre from that point on. The problem was that where Friday the 13th, it took the lowest common denominators from Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, knife-wielding killer, POV shots of murders, nudity, and graphic violence. Right. And scary music. It took those elements and just basically said, yeah, that's all we need to make a successful film. We'll get somebody to make it and it'll be okay. All the successors from that, including the sequels, turned out to be pale carbon copies of that formula, and each one just became more, you know, black and white, low common denominator versions of the original. So, including, by the way, Halloween 2. So I think you 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 answered that. That was a very long-winded answer, but the, the I want to... I am long-winded. ...re-hit that list you just talked about. Gratuitous violence, teenagers getting killed... Nudity. Nudity... The point of view shots, which really disturbed a lot of critics. Yeah. Would you say the opening teaser became, was that overused or is it just those two that happened to use it effectively? Like the, the flashback. Oh, that became a thing because the, I think if you look up the definition of slasher films, it gets broad, but a lot of people have broken it down to a a series of gruesome acts committed in present day as a result of trying to right some grand moral or terrible wrong that happened in the past. Right. Ergo, most of these films, if they're going to follow that formula, have to set up, oh, look what terrible thing happened to little Joey, or in this case, young Jason, in the past, so we can justify these usually morally-based killings that are happening in the present. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, the Halloween murders, there was definitely, there's been a lot of print about the terrors and evils of promiscuous underage sex or drug use and Mm -hmm. you know they were asking for it and all that so usually on our podcast we will compare a movie and the decisions that a filmmaker made that drastically affected the character or the story versus a novel we don't have a novel in friday the 13th case would it be fair to say how like maybe some decisions a filmmaker made against halloween or maybe psycho or Maybe I'll ask this a different way. What do we think was original about Friday the 13th versus what was something that was like ripped off? We've talked a little bit Mm -hmm. about Halloween and Carrie. Where did Friday the 13th blaze some new trails on its own as a film versus some of the stuff we've said that it was clearly copying? I don't really think it did. (laughs) (laughs) 
to be honest, it um, uh, the original Friday the Thirteenth is not a good movie. Right. And there were twelve more after that, and they almost got progressively worse. Mm. Again, it's more. It's it really is a glorified campfire tale. Yeah. A, a simple story that doesn't have to be a complicated one. But it's the original film's not really told with a lot of visual elegance. It has a few moments, but it's mostly noted for, you know, some of the now sort of dated practical effects. Tom Savini murders, right? Kevin Bacon's second role, the the spooky music and the bullshit jump scare at the end. But it's because in many ways it does owe a ton to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. Both were were obviously way better films, right? All of these owe everything to Robert Block's novel, Psycho, if you really Absolutely. want to go back Yeah, that's Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. Because um, Block wrote Psycho, and Psycho literally influenced everything for ever, 30 years at least after that. Yep. Uh, you know, in Friday the 13th's case, again, it's sort of um, more so than Halloween. One, well, one thing it does that Halloween doesn't necessarily do, Halloween's sense of isolation is maybe not quite as strong. Yep. Because while there are a lot of scenes that take place in houses and whatnot... There's still a feeling you could run outside down the street and Hanfield's not very big. You could probably and she, be in And sure. Laurie Strode does run down the street. Right, right. From house to house towards right. the end, yeah. In Halloween, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're out in the middle of the woods. Mm-hmm. And even you run outside, you're, it's dark and you're going to get lost. And the killer probably knows his or her way around the woods right. a lot better. Ultimately, Friday the 13th, when you got into parts two and beyond... You establish an iconic murderer at that point with Jason Voorhees. So you really had, and Michael Myers kind of was that, but I think Jason sort of passed him up in even the marketing area after that. Probably because hockey masks were easier to replicate, I don't <laughs> know. Uh, you know, I, I, Friday the 13th didn't really follow new new territory. In fact, it was also a ripoff of an Italian film called Twitch of the Death Nerve, which is Probably the greatest movie title. I was going to say, that's a great title. Oh, that's a great title. But it did, however, take those basic concepts, package them extremely well, and deliver something that hit the right nerve for the the younger to the teen audience at the time. And deliver it in a nice 90-minute little package that, uh, that made for great date films. Yeah. I think what it did really well, to your point, through this is where art meets magic right <laughs> it became a great date film yeah i think it was it it just had that magic chemistry of like getting the kids of that time into theaters mm-hmm. i would say that some of the things having rewatched it again the other night in prep of this podcast so first of all when i think when most people think about friday the 13th they think of jason and jason yes. is effectively not in the movie and so having the big reveal at the end. We're assuming it's a man. We see mm-hmm. man boots and we see right, this tall, right. you know, and a body is getting thrown. Right. So we, the viewer, are thinking it's going to be a man this whole time. And it turns out not to be a man. I think they cheated a little bit because they basically brought in that character in the last five sure. minutes of the film. So right. it's like, come on. But still. Um, so it wasn't a man. So I think that gender swap at the end was very mm-hmm. uh, poignant for its time. I would argue probably some of the most famous sound marks. The oh yeah, the iconic theme and yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is definitely very Friday the Thirteenth. So that I'm sure we could dig up in the show notes who came up with that sound. But I mean, that's Harry Manfredini, I believe. Oh okay, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I I think most horror fans would be able to identify if you just even played that little clip and asked them what that's from. 
And I think what was interesting to me about the film, and now having watched Friday the 13th 3, which was completely lacking it, is <laughs> similar to what we talked about in The Shining, about how the Overlook is a character. It's this looming yes. character through the whole thing. The lake and the dark lake, like almost, and, and I don't know if the artist intended to do this or director intended, but that movie is very dark. You know, oh, yeah. We yeah. were watching it in HDR over here, and it right. was still... These are dark, dark scenes, and that lake is ominous throughout yeah, it is. most oh, yeah. of the it's a character the film. So it is definitely just as you know brooding as any of the other characters in the film. No, I totally agree. Um, you know, there are and this is one of those things as you get <laughs> as you get deeper into the series, the first one starts looking better and better <laughs> in many regards. Frankly. Yeah, but well, that's why I think the whole the whole feeling of isolation. You've got this lake, which is an ominous itself an ominous character because we know from near the very beginning something horrible happened in this lake and we never get a full sense of scale or size of this lake it could be small it could be massive sometimes it feels both Mm -hmm. which also makes it you know a very powerful tool and this is where as far as like the darkness of the film and whatever else this is why most of the greatest horror films of all time have been low budget films sometimes they have happy accidents like the sheer inability to have big lighting rigs and things like right, that right. force things to look more natural and better. And I think the original Friday the 13th, for all of its technical problems and artistic problems, does have that look of darkness. Especially The night scenes obviously feel, and scenes in the woods do feel authentic. And that's something to be said for it. And I, you, you see later in the series, including part three, as you alluded to, when they started get Paramount gave them a, a few more bucks to buy a light or two. Yeah. They're like, this doesn't really look as good. Yeah, it's like it, it looks like a Hollywood night scene. Well, it looks like a studio, yeah. backlot studio woods. It was almost, I mean, we were watching, the girls and I were watching the original Night of the Living Dead. And so same yeah. thing. I mean, the night scenes when the bodies or the zombies or the ghouls, yeah. as they're called them, crawling out of the woods, it... It feels dark. It's not oh, yeah. like movie dark. Oh, yeah. It's dark, dark. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's why yeah. I think horror films in particular lend themselves to having low budgets. Because I think when you get too polished with a horror film, you really start losing the visceral edge of it. Right. And again, as many problems as Friday the 13th has, because frankly, you don't have great people behind it. You still had the low budget elements that, that contributed to that sense of isolation, darkness, reality. So... And, and that's what scared people. I mean, people were scared by Friday the 13th. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting about the movie, and I'm watching it again. Now, I believe it came out in 1980. Correct. But watching that film, it feels like a 70s movie yeah. to me. It feels yeah. like some of that early De Palma stuff. Sure. As they come out, the hairstyles, the mm-hmm. wardrobes. And then you contrast that versus Friday the 13th part three mm-hmm. you're the you're well entrenched They're right in the into 80s. members only time yes. that's right you've got <laughs> mullets and you've got acid wash jeans yeah and you've got like the 80s video biker gang oh yeah yeah, yeah the music and everything yeah so i mean if you guys want to do yourself a little uh era you know like how movies progress through eras take a look at friday the 13th one versus three and you can say like how the seventies turn into the eighties through the through the right. wardrobes of teens and whatnot. So let's talk a little bit about the women of Friday the thirteenth. May they rest in peace. Are they not here anymore? Well in the movies are all dead. That's true in the murder. Yeah. Is it fair to say the women in that movie 
well, let's just say, were they objectified? Were, were, was, it, was it violence against women in that film? That's a great question. And um, again, I'll probably give you a long-winded answer, but what the heck? We have time to keep it. I have it. an opinion on it, but we'll see. Well, I know you. Oh, yeah. No, and, and, and we're probably not as far removed as you may think. But short answer would probably be yes. But let, let's look at the original film in that this regards. Is This was 1980. Things were different. Our views on women in films and everything was different at the time. Number two, Sean Cunningham and his partners who made this film, their background was in soft core sex films. Mm. So they're sort of sticking with what they know as far as that goes. Yeah. There were, uh, there are a number of references in the film to four, I think I counted to, oh, you're a beautiful lady. Oh, are they all as pretty as you and things like that? Yeah. That's um, the, and, and to be fair, mm-hmm. I think I asked you two questions. Are they objectified and are they victimized? Sure. And I think they're two different. So especially in the early reel of that film, the first reel of that film, there's like several like creeper kind of comments right. like that, which I don't think really age very well. And I think you're probably going to get here. But in terms of like being victims, I think the victims are equally male and female. So no, it's actually I did even count of victims oh, okay. in, in, in terms of four versus. Well, the killer being a woman, she's number five, but we're not, she will keep her out of the stats because she's the. She yeah. started it all. She's anyway. got to die. She's the killer. Yeah, the killer she started this whole mess anyway. Right. But no, she was an equal opportunity killer as yeah. far as that goes. Um, the objectification, I get it. Um, I think a lot of the creepiness early on, I think you can already, first of all, it's sort of benignly creepy, not like we would see in later films in this series and in some of the ripoffs. Oh, really? Okay. You know, again, as I think I mentioned earlier, it's more closer to the Louis C.K. creepiness oh. than, say, a Harvey Weinstein creepiness for what that's worth. Yeah. yeah. I, and not to give the screenplay too much credit, I could make an argument that there was a reason for it in the first film, because we don't know who the killer is. Right. We're going to assume it's a male, like you pointed out earlier. So the male characters, I think, are, are there's an extra level of creepiness imposed on them mm-hmm. to keep them in the suspect list. Right. And also, I think, again, not to start... This isn't Death of a Salesman, so I'm not going to read too much into this freaking movie, right? But right. If you go back to the nineteen fifty, the, the the drowning of Jason Voorhees that happened in 1957, it was the direct result of a bunch of pretty counselors who thought it was more important to, to be horny and have sex than keep an eye on the kid drowning in the lake. Right. So flash ahead to 1980, here everybody's looking, oh, look, another pretty bunch of people who are going off to be camp counselors. Gee, I wonder if something bad's going to happen because right. of that too. So even because one of the one of the four mentions of "Oh, isn't she beautiful?" or whatever is made by the killer herself toward the end when she sees one of the victims. Hmm. So, are the women being objectified somewhat? I think in this first film, definitely throughout the entire genre. Right. So I, I can't disagree with that, but I'd say this was definitely not the worst offender of the series. Back in the 80s, Siskel and Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who had their a couple different review shows, they had an aneurysm every time one of these shows movies came out mm. for this very reason. They had entire episodes, an hour-long episode of their show dedicated to how women are treated in these slasher films. Right. So this was an issue even back then. Sure. And it's part of what created the backlash that caused Paramount and the other studios to start pulling back on these slasher films yeah. and handing them back over to the smaller studios. Yeah. yeah. So... But also let me point out in almost every one of these slasher films, almost every single one of them, there was a quote unquote final girl. Hmm. There was a resourceful, smart woman who survived at the end and was the last person. So for all of the objectification, which I can't totally disagree with at all, 
they still pulled it to, okay, the smart woman, the one in the group, the smart person in the group, she's the one who's going to pull through this and survive. And again, it was almost always yeah. a woman. Yeah, it's like the Laurie Strode character or the Ripley character right. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, because Halloween's not exactly innocent of all this stuff either. Oh, no. I'm not Halloween gets yet. off the hook for a lot of stuff. Its plot doesn't make a ton of sense. Right. It objectifies women. It does everything Friday the 13th did. It does it with incredibly better craftsmanship, though. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I was thinking about as we as you were going through that, uh, your your answer, the thing about Friday the 13th, you know, we, we're meta-reviewing it now. We know about Jason. Sure. We know about the hockey mask, which doesn't appear until the third episode right. and whatnot. But at the time, like you said, you said something. At the time when you're watching the movie, they're giving you suspects of who the killer might be. Maybe it's Crazy Fred, or maybe it's the counselor Steve, who's very busy until he has to go spend the rest of the movie at the diner drinking coffee or something yeah. like that. Um, it was a hell of a lunch. And then as you're watching it, you're like, oh, okay, I guess he's not the, the killer. I right. mean, you know that it was somebody from the 50s because they had that whole pre-sequence, that right. opening sequence. But at some level of the movie, it's a bit of a whodunit. Right. Until you realize everybody's dead now, especially when Steve bites well, sure. the farm when yeah. he's done with his yeah. day-long lunch break. And that's why I thought it was, you know, that's why I say it's cheating a little bit. If like, is it, if it's a murder mystery, you're trying to figure out who the murderer is. And it's like, oh, the murderer was this character we brought in at the very end of the film. So Yeah, it's it's the worst whodunit in history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. no one really cares. Yeah. Because, frankly, no, I mean, it never set itself up. I, I think it kind of wanted to be, but it never really even had one level of competence as far as a whodunit goes. And I don't really anybody really cared anyway. I mean, it wasn't really, it didn't really matter who it was. I mean, the Scream films later on, which I was actually not a big fan of either, the Scream films did a way better job of the whole whodunit element. But usually it wasn't. Uh, but Friday the 13th was, it, if Mrs. Voorhees had been earlier integrated earlier in the film, yeah. even if she had been apparently killed but really wasn't, right. then you can make an argument that, uh, yeah, okay, that, that works better. But yeah. eh, no, it, it, it was not a successful whodunit. I think if we were to if, if that if that movie were to be remade today, well, one it has been remade. Obviously, you can't have a you would have to do something very clever with the twist of like the Who Done It, sure. Because I think everybody at this point would be expecting Jason, right, right. And well, you're obligated almost by law to have Jason in a Friday the Thirteenth film at this point, right? So, Stephen E. What would you say is the legacy of Friday the 13th in terms of what did it contribute to the horror genre? Maybe those are two different questions. Well, short answer, it's the most influential bad film ever made. I would say that. And leading into that, it literally influenced, at the bare minimum, as I think I might have mentioned earlier, an entire decade of, it reformed the entire genre. Because you, if you didn't have a slasher film, you probably weren't getting into a theater as a horror film from 80 to the mid-90s. Right. And then when you thought the genre was dead, they were still making Friday the 13th films. And then the, the, the slasher film genre would have another resurgence, mm-hmm. like with the Scream series, for example. Right. Where it became more self-referential and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, that died. Then it came back again. So, it, again, the Friday the 13th film really was the launching pad, or at least the catalyst, for uh, an entire and very enduring subgenre of horror films. I think it also was the first horror film, 
other than maybe Jaws and the Universal films of the 30s and 40s, to launch a massive marketing and pop culture phenomenon hmm. after that. Because, look, Jason's appeared in action figures, lunchboxes, video games, yeah, um, artwork, board games, any number of different things. I have them all at my house, so I ought to right. Friday the 13th was a pop culture phenomenon on top of every... and genre influencer, so... As much as the films weren't any good, you can make an argument that there may not have been a more influential horror film other than if, uh, certainly since 1980. I would have to look at, when I think about 80s and horror, and there was a lot of 80s slasher films that were like, you know, Fright Night or Prom Night or any of those, but they were effectively dominated with Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and, you know, Jason as like right. the three big... Right, you know, I and Leatherface, and Leatherface. And, well, and Chucky sort of snuck in there and his his yeah, cute little yeah, self. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to do some more prep before we talk about like. I mean, it would be really. I mean, maybe that's another episode we'll do sometime. <laughs> the differences between Michael, Jason, and Freddy Krueger, sure. who becomes the wisecracking, well, you know, sure. serial killer. Yeah, yeah. I think Michael Myers. I mean. Michael Myers and and Freddy, or not Freddy, um, Jason, are basically just a hockey mask apart. They're both silent, unstoppable. You know, there's not a whole lot of difference between those two killers. No, there aren't. And which is probably good because then you're not getting the wise ass, you know, jokes at the end of a. No, no, they were. I mean, they were what they were. They were just basically the stalking, uh, you know, zombie-like golems. And again, this is where when Jason came into being, he really was... At that point, it was pretty clear Friday the 13th really was leveraging Halloween. Right. Because Jason really was, you can argue, a ripoff of Michael Myers. Um, Leatherface was still his own thing because he was yeah. actually more human. There was a, a smarter backstory behind him yeah. and all that. Freddy was a, basically a dream demon. So the others and Chucky was... Well, he was a doll. He no, was all right. He was a doll. He stabbed you in the knee. And, it was, <laughs> and he also wisecracked. So there was... So, you've got Chucky, and you've got the thing for magic, and oh yeah, well, the doll, killer doll category. The killer dolls is a whole separate subgenre. Right. Good luck to you folks on those. But well, I did a podcast on uh, Burn Witch Burn, which is about killer dogs and witches, or killer oh, dolls and witches. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a market for it. Well, Annabelle films are still doing well. Yeah, so that's true. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not it, it's not a totally dead concept whatsoever, but. No, Friday the 13th was, um, as much as people want to, you know, call it reprehensible, it was a it was extremely influential. Most people will be able to tell you, talk to you more about Jason than they will Michael Myers even. It's become pop culture. There's always been legend that part of the reason the NHL redesigned their hockey goalie masks was <laughs> so that it no longer looked like Jason's mask, which is saying something. Its place in history is indelible mm-hmm. and important. Maybe not admirable to some degree, but I have fond memories of it to the extent of I don't, I wasn't a big fan of the films, but from part three to the remake, I was there opening night of every one of them. Right. Because it was an experience. Theaters were always full, people were hollering and whooping, screaming, and it was just sort of throwing popcorn around, and it was just one of those experiences that I'm not sure you can capture in theaters anymore. Quite honestly, I don't think fans get into movies like that anymore at that level. So that was the, you know, it was like the last of the drive-in sort of movies. Right. 
yeah, that is that that sort of loud the loud audience. I mean, like with the film as opposed to just on your cell yeah, phone. Yeah, screaming, "Hey, don't open that door! Yeah. Don't go into the woods! Right, don't right. skinny dip! You don't, don't get that anymore. You you do not know. Well, and I think to your point is like a lot of horror films I see now are you know you'll get an effective low budget one here and there, but most of the last and in, in my opinion the last ten or fifteen years have been very CGI intensive. Like all those conjuring ones there's there's a lot of scenery chewing cgi effects in in those kind of creatures so you oh sure yeah you've lost a lot of the the creepiness of like it's really dark in that cabin and then they slowly open up the door and yeah you can't really um i mean some of the slasher films still there's not very many of them anymore yeah they still rely on some practical effects i think the the hatchet series is among Mm -hmm. the better in that regard even though they stretch themselves too far yeah, well, like every other uh, every other part of Hollywood, CGI has sort of hit the horror films too. Sometimes for good, but not completely whatsoever. Right. right. Okay. Cool. Anything else we want to say about the film? Any last thoughts? Um, I don't know. Not really. I mean, again, it's um, we didn't talk about. We did the math, and there's been, like you said, 12 sequels, and I think we said Halloween had... Well, 12 total, I think. Or 12 total in the yeah. series, and Halloween had one or two fewer than that. Or one more. I might, it might have been up near 13. I've Well, it's going to be... There will pass them up, because there's two more sequels to the last right. re, last sequel, re, whatever the heck that was in place. And so. it did genre hop, because at some point, right. you do go, and Jason faces off against Freddy. Right. Which is arguably the best in that in the in the Friday right. series, for not everybody, but for me it was. Yeah, it's just it's way too well known a property, so that that guy isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It'll probably show up in like a its own Netflix series or CW series at some point. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. There, there's your marketing gold. <laughs> Camp Crystal Lake, the CW series. You know, and every week you have to figure out who the new killer is. If you well, can have American Horror Story, you can definitely have a Camp Crystal Lake series. Well, I was going to say, in fact, last season, American Horror Story 1984 was all about slasher films. And it, was, it, it wasn't it was my favorite thing ever, but it was had some moments and touched on the genre, interestingly, in an interesting fashion. So, again, it's sort of like this, the, this not very good film that cost... Over half a million dollars that was by design supposed to be a ripoff of a better film mm-hmm. has a legacy that's endured for forty years. Yeah, and I know. So, I mean, that's a good point. Like yeah. the whole, like you're saying, American Horror Story is still yeah. milking that territory yes. at this point. Yeah, they're still trying to do another Friday film, but I know there's some legal shenanigans going on with the franchise for whatever reason. Um, but there, there will be more. We, we have not seen the last of Jason. I'm pretty confident of that. The video game series that came out a couple of years ago has been a hit. It's just, um, it's really amazing to think of. Uh, when you look at the impact that the Universal films had, which are generally wonderful, elegant, classic films, Friday the Thirteenth has to be put in that class, if not quality, at least an impact. Right. Yeah. It's, it's for a different generation. It's you well, know, sure. It's that generation's drive-in movies. Well, yeah. 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 One interesting tidbit I read is that our friend Mike Flanagan, his next project is going to be another uh, Stephen King film. They're going to adapt Revival. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, so I'm really excited about that. I actually haven't read Revival, but I 
picked up a copy of it. So I'm going to pick that up because I think he's done some really good adaptations between him and, uh, you know, Rob Reiner who did misery and stand by me. And obviously Darabont who did three Stephen King films. I think he's like, again, one of my top three favorite King adapters. So exciting news there. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, Mike Flanagan's a terrific director. It is interesting if we now have this, that he suddenly now becomes the voice of Stephen King or the right. the the visionary of Stephen King. Unfortunately, it seems like his efforts haven't exactly translated into big box office. But uh, I don't think this one's destined to the box office anyway, is it? I think it's uh, is it going straight to Netflix or something? I you know I don't know honestly. Okay. I don't know if it's a straight to Netflix thing like Gerald's Game was or not. Because that may that may suit it better. But I, I would. But Gerald's like to, Game was great. Yeah, know? I was gonna say. I mean, yeah. everything he's done's been good. I would like to see him maybe take a break and be have a chance to do like his own invisible man or something that gets some good box office notice. Right, right. I think he's talented enough. Well, I think I he's doing, he's, he's doing another season of Hill house. So he'll oh, be good. doing some okay. Henry James. Good. good. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Hey, you know what guys got talent. He's an interesting filmmaker. And if he's making some money good for him, we could use more like that. Right. Right. So, do we have any housekeeping to do? Um, I don't think we got any email since our last episode. We got a couple of tweets from Nola Burt responding to our email response, but I think we covered that ground. Okay, very good. Very good. I, you know, I think one thing we'd like to do, this is sort of an amusing bit of data we recovered. Apparently, we have a pretty good fan base in Poland. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened in Poland, but apparently... <laughs> A third of our listenership came from Poland yeah. in March, so yeah. I don't know if we showed up on someone's radar there, but if you're in Poland and you're listening to us, um, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you to our friends in Poland. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Dr. Sleep made some money over there. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. And it, was, it was definitely the March the March episodes that, that put us on the map over there. That's pretty cool, though. So, you know, I, I thank you to our listeners, wherever you may be, and... You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that we're we're kind of like what Jerry Lewis was to France, I guess. So. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, so we're still uh, we're still in this COVID recovery period, so we're all hunkered down. I'd like to do some more interesting stuff with the Frankenstein episode, but Frankenstein is coming. We will continue to. I think we're getting closer, very much getting closer to yeah. that. We're actually in the same room tonight, so we're not holding hands or anything. So we're right. still maintaining social distancing. Yes, we're we're the proximate number of feet we need to be away from the microphone all right well thank you everybody stay safe stay healthy and um, enjoy some good books and movies yes thank you and stay away from the lake you've been listening to black ink red film with your hosts Stephen newton and Stephen e Payne. music was created by matthew murdoch please send any comments questions or requests to black ink red film at gmail.com and you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening. <laughs>